0: You are listening to audio recorded at Mount Air First Christian Church. For more resources or to contact us, look us up at www.mountairfirstchristianchurch.org. 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 8 through 13. But do not overlook this fact, This one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Grass withers, and the flower fades. Word of our God stands forever. So this morning, as we head into our doctrine of Christ's return, we are headed into... What is one of the most loved but also most loathed areas of Christian theology? Eschatology. All right, I love the big word, you know, eschatology, which is just the study of the eschaton or the last days. Eschaton means last days. And so this is an area of theology called eschatology. Now it's it's discussed and has been discussed and thought about since the beginning of Christianity. Right here we're reading in 2 Peter, uh, his, one of his late letters, but talking about the reality of the return of Christ. And we confess it in the Nicene Creed that we are looking for this return of Christ, that he's going to return one day. We just sang about it in our that the, the hymn we just sang. It's a newer hymn, but turn your eyes. One day the king will return for his own. And this has been a, a doctrine that is just well-known or it's just an essential part of Christian theology. Um, but it's, I say it's most loved because there are certain Bible teachers who, when they start talking about eschatology, they're going to get out all their giant charts and graphs and start pointing to, here's what's going to happen. And they really, they love the chronology of how all this is going to play out. What's going to happen when Christ's return? What's going to happen with the nations and all of these things when Christ return? And they get really excited about all of these times. That's why it's loved by some. But it's also loathed by those who see this whole charting it out timeline thing as kind of missing the whole idea. Missing the big picture. Trying to get into the details and discern the details at, at um, at the ruin or the, the, the missing of the point of what, it, what really is essential. It's like opening a present and it's, you get something shipped to you and you open up the box, but instead of being excited about the thing that you ordered, you spend all your time discerning the packing peanuts and like how they were arranged in there. It isn't, it's amazing, these packing peanuts. It doesn't make any sense, right? But that's, you, know, you can get caught up in these details that are interesting but they're really not the main point. They're not the main point. And here's the main idea from the doctrine of Christ's return. Are you ready for it? Here's the big idea, this is the main point. Jesus is going to return. Jesus is going to return. Christ is coming back. And it may seem silly to state that so emphatically, but it is a doctrinal position that we must be absolutely clear on that Christ who ascended into heaven there in acts chapter 1 which we could look at Christ resurrects spends 40 days ministering to his disciples and then they go and they at the beginning of the book of acts they're looking and Jesus ascends into heaven he's and he's well he ascends and he's swallowed up by a cloud and we don't really know. This. It's it's hard to see what then happens after he goes into this cloud, which is kind of Old Testament language of he's caught up into the glory cloud. He's caught up into the glory of God, and he ascends then into heaven. And as they're standing there, the men, of course, astonished at this person who's disappeared into the clouds, as one would be. An angel appears and says, "What are you doing? Why are you staring at this event?" Just as he left, so will he return. That as Christ ascended into heaven in a real physical body that they were able to touch, that ate fish, that they had fellowship with, just as he ascended into heaven, so also will he return. As important and as essential as the the incarnation is, that, that Jesus was God in the flesh, that he really walked the earth, that he had meals, that he slept, that he rested, that he traveled across and all around Galilee and Jerusalem and all these areas. As real as he was in his life, as real as his uh, crucifixion was, that he really died on the cross, as real as his resurrection was when we come around to Easter Sunday, it's absolutely important. I would say we talk about it more than just an Easter Sunday But what we're celebrating there is the real bodily resurrection of Jesus. Not a a ferially, not not some spiritual resurrection, not the, the reincarnation of an idea. But no, Jesus in his real physical body rose from the grave. The grave clothes that had wrapped around him were left in an empty pile of cloths. And his real body was there. He ate fish with them. He was able to, Thomas stuck his hand in his side and felt the the holes in his hands where he'd been crucified. As important as all of those realities are, equally real is the promise of Christ's personal bodily return. This is why our doctrinal statement starts as it does. We'll look at it here together. I got it up on the screen. It's a shorter one this time. It's not quite as packed in there. This is what the doctrinal statement says, point nine. We believe in the personal, bodily, and glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. The coming of Christ at a time known only to God requires constant expectancy and, as our blessed hope, motivates the believer to godly living sacrificial service and energetic mission. End of paragraph. Now, from our text in Second Peter this morning, we read that Peter refers to this day as the day of the Lord. He says, uh, verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And this is familiar language if you read, read your Old Testament. I went back and checked when I preached through Zephaniah. Who remembers me preaching through, who's heard a sermon series through Zephaniah? I ruined my question. Darn it. I was going to ask you, who's ever heard a sermon series on the book of Zephaniah? And if no one raised their hands, I'd say, well, are you kidding? We did one. We did three weeks in the book of Zephaniah in the fall of 2016. How do you not remember that? But we did do it. We did go through the book of Zephaniah. And one of the themes of Zephaniah is this coming day of the Lord. There's this coming judgment that God is going to come and He's going to judge the nations. He's going to judge the world in righteousness. The book of Joel is full of um, this day of the Lord imagery. The book of Isaiah speaks about this coming day of the Lord. This when Christ and then the New Testament takes that day of the Lord... And applies it to the, day, the coming of Christ. Jesus is Lord. This Old Testament day of the Lord that they're looking for. In the New Testament writers, they, they conflate those. They put them together. They say, that coming day of the Lord is the day when Jesus is going to return. He is the Lord. And one day he's going to come and, 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 and bring judgment, bring justice to the world. There's this expectation of this coming day of the Lord. Now, the Old Testament expression very much has involved the idea of this coming judgment of God. And we could go into a lot of depth regarding the circumstances of Christ's return, the judgment of the nations, and the final state of God's people. Um, but that's kind of next week. Next week, our 10th doctrinal statement is on um, the, the final state And and personal responsibility, I think, is how it's said. That that's coming up kind of next week. This final state, the kind of how that's going to go down. But next next week is focused on the reality of the return of Christ, and but this week is focused. Yeah, next week is more in line with the judgment of the nations and the final state of God's people. This week we're focusing on the reality of just the return of Christ and the implications that flow from that reality. Jesus is not done with his work here. I mean, his, his salvation work is completed. Christ is on the cross, and he says, it is finished. And for the saving of sinners, nothing more needs be done. It is sufficient, it is fulfilled, it is satisfied. Christ has finished his salvific work. However, when we look around the world and we see all is not yet as it totally should be. In Romans 8. I think verse 21 around in there talks about this groaning of the world, longing for its redemption. And we see the world still groaning. The fact that I have to wear a mask this morning because we're in this group is a sign of the world still groaning. It's still broken. There's still things that go wrong and it's groaning and and waiting for the day of its redemption. Christ is going to come and, and consummate His kingdom here on earth. He's going to finish his work. There is business yet for him to complete. It's important to remember that as much as we stress the reality of Christ as a real person in space, time, and history, in the reality of his work on the cross, his burial, and his resurrection, it's important to remember the real-life return of Christ to this earth. Christ himself... Said this is what he would do. Jesus is prophet. He operates in all three of these roles as prophet, priest, and king. And the book of Revelations is this great revealing of Jesus as the king. He's going to return and rule the nations. We, we talk a lot about Jesus and his role as the priest because he takes the blood of the the sacrifice into the holy place and brings atonement for his people. The priest stands as an intermediary between God and his people. We see his priestly role. But Christ also was a prophet. And prophet has a couple... You you can mean prophet as in he's a truth teller, which he was. But Jesus also had had a specific knowing of future events. And there's all these weird stories in the New Testament in, in the Gospels, right? Of where Jesus, he knows where people are when they go to get them. He, he, knows, um, he knows where the donkey is going to be. He knows where the man's going to be carrying a pail of water and follow him and he's going to lead you to the upper room. He knows what's in men's hearts, but he, he has all of these interesting um, just foreknowledge. Jesus foretells his death many times in the Gospels. They're going to be given into the, to the, the hands of sinners. He knows he's going to be crucified. He knows he's going to be put to death. He also knows that they're going to kill him and he's going to be raised from the dead. Jesus operates in this prophetic that he knows all of these things. He repeatedly tells of his coming death and his resurrection. Well, in Matthew chapter 24, we see something uh, very fascinating out of the mouth of Jesus And you can look at it if you want to. We we studied this a little bit on Wednesday night. But Matthew chapter 24, right at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all of these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. What does that matter? Well, Jesus is making this statement AD 32, 33-ish. He's, he's, he's telling his, his disciples, they're, they're amazed at the beauty of the temple. And he's saying, listen, the day is coming when not a stone here around the temple will be left. It will be, it'll be raised to the ground. This is 32, 33 AD. Jesus dies, resurrected, ascends into heaven 40 years almost later, A.D. 70, we know from history what happens. Rome comes in and destroys the temple and not a stone is left of the temple in Jerusalem. It is raised to the ground. Jesus operating in his prophetic role lets his disciples know the day is coming when this temple is gonna be destroyed, that this Jewish temple will be no more. And it, it occurs 37 years after Jesus predicts it now you go on so jesus has this incredible prophetic role that his what he says what he says is going to happen happens he's going to die he says he does he's going to be killed as a criminal he is he's going to be raised 3 days later he is the the jerusalem temple is going to be destroyed it is you go on in chapter 24 What prophecy is he getting ready to make? Verse 29 of chapter 24. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in the heaven the sign of the son of man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man. That's a reference to himself. This is this Daniel title of the son of man. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from all over the earth, from one end of heaven to the other. Jesus, in his role as prophet, saying all these things are going to happen. What else has he said is going to happen? The day is going to come when he is going to return. Jesus is a perfect prophet. He has said he will return. He doesn't fail in his prophecies. Christ is going to return. Four observations then in our remaining few minutes from, from this text and our statement. The first is the imminence of the return of Christ. It is imminent, which just means it it's, can happen any moment. That's, that's what the, 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 Peter makes this reference that he's heard from Jesus himself, right? We, we read it there in Matthew 24, Paul quotes it also in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, but here Peter says in uh, 2 Peter 3.10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, like a thief in the night. There, Jesus' return is imminent. It's it's going to, it can come at any moment and you won't necessarily be expecting it. No one's expecting the thief to show up in the night. That's why they show up in the night, but there's nothing remaining for it to happen, for Christ to return His return is imminent. Paul, as I said, quotes Jesus also in his statement in 1 Thessalonians. If you want to look there as well, go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We'll look at verses 1 through 6. This is Paul writing to the church at Thessalonica. He says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. He says there, again, reaffirming the idea that Jesus' is going, day coming is going to be a surprise as regards to the timing. He says, you know, that this is not, you are, you are not as a, in the darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief would. He doesn't mean that we're all of a sudden going to know when that day is going to be, but that we are to be living in an expectancy that this is going to happen. That this, the imminent return of Christ is to be expected This produces in God's people a glad expectancy. Our Savior is returning. He has not abandoned us. He has not left us. He is returning to to redeem this world and to rescue his people. Our passage in in 2 Peter says that according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Christ is is returning. There should be then in the life of believers a hopeful expectancy in the return of Christ to establish his kingdom on earth with those who are his. It could happen at any moment. It could happen at any moment. They believed this in the early church at 60 AD, 70 AD, 90 AD. They're they're expecting at any moment Christ could return. Should we any less... Now that we've been here for a couple millennia, expect that Christ could return at any moment? Absolutely. He has promised he will. He has promised that he will. We certainly should live with an expectancy of the imminent return of Christ, where he will come and make all things new. So, imminence comes from this text and from our doctrinal statement, but also comes from this doctrinal statement about Christ's return is sobriety. That because Christ is going to return, we should be concerned with godly living. Back in First Thessalonians, we read that passage that what sort of people ought we to be? People living sober lives. Meaning reflective, serious, taking seriously the things that are going on in our lives. Because the hour of Christ's return is at hand, it begins to flavor everything that we do. We do not know what we'll be doing when Christ returns. There's this sense in which the Christian lives every moment before the reality of God because, not only because God is omnipresent, we're corum Deo, the Latin term for before the face of God. We are always before the face of God, but because he truly could return at any moment. Jonathan Edwards is a famous American theologian, has these Seventy um, resolutions, and in the nineteenth resolution, he says this: He says, "Resolved, never to do anything which I would be afraid to do if I expected it would not be more than an hour before I would hear the last trump sound." And by that he means when Jesus returns, the last trumpet sound. That was out of that Matthew twenty-four passage. Sends out the angels, the trumpets shall sound, and they gather the elect from the four corners of the earth. I would not do, never do anything which I would be afraid to do if I expected it would not be more than an hour before I would hear the last trump sound. There is a sobriety that comes with this reality of the return of Christ. How differently would your day look if you thought that it was the day that Christ was going to return? What activities would you not want to be caught doing? I know this sounds like Sort of gimmicky, but there's this real practical application in our thinking that should come from the doctrine of Christ's return. His return is imminent. What do we want to be found doing? The thief coming in the night always surprises. That's the point that's being made. Be ready. It could happen at any moment. Be ready. So there's the imminency of it. There is the there is the sobriety of the return of Christ. There also is this different perspective. Our doctrinal statement talks about um, we are to, as as this constant expectancy, our blessed hope motivates the believer to godly living. I would say it's kind of sobriety, trying to live Christ-honoring lives, but also sacrificial service. The return of Christ produces sacrificial service. Now, how how is that so? Well, I think the return of Christ gives us a different perspective on the things of this world. When we have a proper view of Christ and his return, we begin to see what really matters. And the things of this life begin to lose their idolatrous appeal. Peter, in this passage, it's a pretty terrifying thing to read about, really. When he talks there in verse 10, the day is gonna come, the Lord will come like a thief, the heavens will pass away with a roar, heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. They'll be burnt. They'll be, they'll be burnt up. But these, melt, these heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. We're waiting for this new heavens and this new earth. What is Peter saying is going to happen to those things that, that occupy so much of our lives in this world? They're going to be melted down with the rest of the world. For most of us, our lives are spent in the pursuit of creating or finding something of value in this life. So much energy is spent trying to fill this life with as much meaning as we can put into it. Whether that's through relationships, through the accumulation of possessions or money, whether that's business success, whatever it may be, we have our hopes set on the things of this world. And when Christ returns, the things of this world that have not been for Christ... They don't last. They don't last. They will not last the return of Christ. Think of all the effort that is spent to try and create something that outlasts yourself. So many are tied up with trying to leave a legacy. Don't you wonder how many midlife crises could be, are just the, are just the outpouring, they're ignited with the realization that you don't have enough time left to leave the legacy you always thought you wanted to leave. You're not going to leave the mark you wanted to leave. You know, there's this, this phrase that was attributed to Malcolm Forbes I'm not sure if that's right or not but you've heard the this say, this saying, "He who dies with the most toys wins." It was very, it was very popular for a while. You put it on the back of your sports car. I guess if you bought a big fancy car, you put it on the back of "He who dies with the most toys wins. And we kind of see, okay, that's, that's, that's very vain, it's childish. Um, that's, that's ridiculous. But honestly, I do think it diagnoses a lot of our consumeristic mindset. We can see the silliness of it, but practically, how much of that actually applies to our way of thinking? He who dies with the most stuff, or he who dies with the most accolades, he who dies with the most possessions, he who dies with the greatest reputation, wins. One of, the, one of my favorite Piper lines, John Piper wrote in his, his Don't Waste Your Life book, is he had this little plaque hanging and it's this tagline of only one life twill soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life twill soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. And when you think about the doctrine of the return of Christ, it brings us some perspective, allowing us then for sacrificial service because the things of this world is not what the world is all about. Darling, I've been watching a TV show, uh, The Right Stuff, and it's about the, the Mercury 7 at the start of the NASA program. And they're getting into space. And it's, it's a fascinating uh, TV depiction of this event. I'm not sure how accurate it is. But the, the argument, the fight between John Glenn and Alan Shepard about who gets to be the first one into space. And Alan Shepard, I mean, who knows the name Alan Shepard? You heard the name Alan Shepard? You heard the name John Glenn. Okay, so see, they've done they've done some good stuff because we've all heard it. Now I'd be interested if we got some more school age children in here and ask them if they've heard of John Glenn yet, if they've heard of if they've heard of Alan Shepard, if they've heard of Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin yet. I'd be interested to see if they've been taught that because the whole point, John Glenn is just obsessed. He wants to be the first man in space because he knows schools are going to teach the name of the man who's the first first American, the Russians had already made it, the first American into space. He wanted to be remembered. He wanted to be remembered and he's giving all of his energy for this notoriety. And I can imagine that being a great driving force. John Glenn, the first man to orbit the planet three times. Thought he lost a heat shield, and it's a fascinating story. But Alan Shepard, the first one officially in space, he just didn't get orbited. So we know their names, but honestly, you know that notoriety is going to wear out. In 100 years, are they still going to be teaching about John Glenn and Alan Shepard? I mean, no no shade, no shade on their accomplishment. I'm not trying to say, you know, put them down, but think of the great figures all throughout history that aren't even taught anymore. Christ is coming. And it should give us perspective on the things that really matter. It gives us, it liberates us to sacrificial service because you're chased after all these things that won't really stand the test of time begin to lose their appeal. And so then it liberates you to live for things that really matter. Only what's done for Christ will last because I'm not having to chase all these things that don't really add up. I don't have to chase after all of this stuff that at the end of it all won't really matter. They're able to take a back seat You're able to take a back seat for the good of others because what's done for Christ is what will truly last. So it's imminence, it's sobriety, it's perspective, it's motivation. Not only does the imminent return of Christ cause sobriety and new perspectives, but it also gives positive motivation. Not only do you not want to be caught doing what you're ashamed of, but you are liberated to be caught living as God would desire you to live. Christ is returning. I remember when, when COVID came out, I, can't, I think I, mean, I was up here uh, in the office, but, but the Utah Jazz is my NBA basketball team. And they're the ones that whenever COVID, Rudy Gobert was the first guy that contract, got a positive coronavirus test and they shut down the NBA, right? You remember that? It seemed like four years ago, It's like just a little over six months ago, they shut it all down. And you think about the NBA when COVID struck. What if all of those guys, once they thought, you know, we're canceling all NBA games, what if they just began to live like, well, I guess, the, I guess this is over. I'm done. And they just went off and started eating pizza and sitting around playing video games. When the NBA came back, they weren't going to be ready, were they? But because they knew the NBA was going to return, they kept working out. They kept laboring. They kept practicing their shot. They kept working because they knew it was going to return. When this last time, when Darla was uh, up in the hospital, normally when Darla's had stays in the hospital, I've stayed with her uh, just because, uh, you know, I I can nurse for her. I can go and get different things. I can take care of her. But because of COVID, I wasn't able to stay. They're like, get out, sir. We don't want you anymore. Go home. So I had to go home. And... You go home, and so then, because I'm home, the kids are able to be home, and so therefore, they're not at grandma's, and people are at home, messes are being made. Now, I had a couple of options there. I could live like Darla's never coming home and let the house go to pieces, which is my inclination, or I could live with the reality, Darla's coming home. Therefore, I better stay at work. And I, was, I just felt ragged at the end of the day from keeping the laundry up, keeping the dishes washed, keeping the toys picked up, all of these things, keeping the, the beds made, keeping the laundry folded, all of these things. Why? Because she was going to come back. Living with this knowledge that, that Darla is going to return, my wife is going to return, motivated me to service. Service because I wanted the place to be ready when she came home. Christ is going to return. The knowledge that things will return, the game will be back on, the wife will come home. They all bring motivation to keep at it because of the joy of that reunion is on the horizon and we don't want anything to diminish that day. We don't want anything to diminish that day. I don't want, didn't want Darla to walk in the door and be like, why is the sink full of dishes? Why are there clothes everywhere? Why is this place a mess? I didn't want anything to diminish that joy. So I was motivated to work hard for sacrificial service because I knew that day was coming. Christ has promised to return. And the New Testament writers comforted and motivated their people with this truth. truth. May God help us to see it as well and find comfort, hope, and motivation there too. Let's pray. God, just give us eyes to see this this promised hope. You are not a God to fail. You are not a God to make a promise and then neglect to fulfill it. You have said you will return. And Father, I pray that it would be an imminent expectant reality in the lives of, of this, the people in this congregation in this church Pray, God, that it would cause us to live soberly. Pray, God, that it would cause us to live with a perspective that allows sacrificial service for others. And that, God, it would be a motivation to get the word of the gospel out to our community around the globe of who Christ is and what he has done for us. That we would be found at that final day working for your glory, for the good of your people and the spread of the gospel around the globe. God, do this work. Give us eyes to see it and hearts embracing it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.